Church, would you open God's Word to Isaiah chapter 48? Isaiah chapter 48, verse 1. We'll be reading all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 22. If you're visiting us this morning, we're so delighted that you're with us. We are currently preaching through the book of Isaiah, this book from the Old Testament. If you are not familiar with the Old Testament, you may find our passage on page number 608 in the Pew Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles in the pews in front of you and take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it and to read it. Uh, and if you have any questions about anything you read in God's Word, I would love to talk to you and, uh, and help you understand more about how and what God revealed to us about Himself. Our only way, our only way of knowing about God is based on what He reveals to us about himself in this book, in God's Word. Therefore, we want to read this book this morning, a part of it, um, Isaiah chapter 48. Here is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by my name, by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by my name of the, by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass, I declare them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard. Now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard. You have never known. From of old, your ear has not been open. For I know that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it from, for you that, you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned. My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen, 
Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his Spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their name would have never been cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, asking God to speak to us this morning? Father, we are privileged to have your revelation. Your word, which you have spoken in old times to your people in the Old Testament. Father, we know that not one of your words, which you have spoken and inspired, not one of them shall fall away without accomplishing everything that you purpose for it. Lord, we pray that your word will accomplish your purpose for us today. In the name of Christ, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Friends, the passage we have before us is part of a section in the book of Isaiah that begins with chapter 40. And uh, this chapter is like a climax to what started going on in chapter 40 or since chapter 40. This passage, this chapter, chapter 48, can be divided in two big sections. Both of them start with a command to hear or to listen. Look at verse 1. Hear this. O house of Jacob. And then look at verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob. In both of these sections, God begins by this call to his people to listen to what he has to say to them. We will, listen, we will hear this, this command of listening a few more times in this, in, this ch- in this chapter. Now, if you were not with us the last few weeks, I just want to do a quick overview of how this section has been building up and climaxing to this chapter, chapter 48. Ever since chapter 40, in the book of Isaiah, God has been promising to redeem his people from the exile that he, God himself, took them to. In chapter 45, God reveals some specifics about how he will rescue his people from the exile. And the specifics are 
that God would raise up a Persian king, King Cyrus. And through him, God will bring his people back from, from exile, from Babylon, back to their land, the land of Canaan. But the Israelites had a hard time hearing the specifics of how God will provide salvation for them. They were happy to hear that God would provide salvation. But when they heard the details, when they heard the means by which God was going to save them, that became a stumbling block to them. They had a hard time accepting the details, the means, how God would save his people, how God would rescue them. This pattern will show up again in the history of God's people as, as the history of that progresses. When God sent his own son, Jesus, to save them, the people of Israel did not receive Jesus. They were happy to hear about God's salvation. They were stumbling in the specifics of that, of how God was going to provide it. Particularly, God provided later, when we think about Cyrus in the, in the 5th century BC, move ahead a few centuries later, when we think of the way God provided salvation through his son Jesus, particularly by killing him, by having him killed on a cross. Well, that was a stumbling block for the Jews. And for the Gentiles, it was folly. On one side, God wants to provide salvation, which is great news. But then when we zoom in on the details of how God provides that salvation, all of a sudden those details become a stumbling block. And we see that pattern in the history of God's people here in in Isaiah chapter 40 and 40, 40 to 48. The people of God struggled to hear that God would use a foreign king to be the means by which God would rescue his people from exile. And this struggle is, is continuing to be exposed in chapter 46. God rebuked his children for resisting his plan of salvation. God illustrated their resistance to be so foolish and silly by giving a picture of a potter, speaking of, of, of a pot, of a piece of clay speaking to the potter. Why would a could a potter speak to a piece of clay speak to the potter and and complain and argue against a potter, asking why the potter chose to to, devour, to form a clay in a particular way. It's silly to see such a, such a resistance. And yet God says, it's just the same way when my people resist my plans. In chapter 47, God turned his direction away from his people to address Babylon. God exposed Babylon's pride and self-assurance in her safety. At the heart of Babylon's pride was her sense that there's no one besides her. And Babylon was warned by God that in her self-made religion, in her self-centered pursuits, she will find no Savior to rescue her. That's how chapter 47 ended, with a message to the rebellious Babylon that God is going to bring judgment against Babylon and that no one is going to be there to save her. There's no one to save you. That's the message God left with Babylon. As we come to chapter 48, God turns his attention back to his people. 
Remember, in chapter 46, God confronted the resistance that God's people had against God's plans. Now God comes back to them and addresses them. The remnant that struggled to accept God's plans to raise up Cyrus to free them, God now speaks to that remnant again. And chapter 48 is a climactic chapter in which God exposes now Israel's rebellion. If chapter 47 was an exposure of Babylon's rebellion, an open rebellion, chapter 48 is an exposure of the rebellion of God's, uh, of God's people themselves. As we look at this chapter, there's going to be two major points. The first one, external confession is not sufficient. External confession is not sufficient. Notice how God describes his people in verse 41. Hear this, O house of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. Now, all these are good things. All all these descriptions are good things to say about someone. The only problem is the way this verse ends. It says, and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. What an indictment. Notice what God says positively about them. They were called by the name of Israel. They came from the waters of Judah, which was a way of describing their their family tree. They came from the source of Judah. They had a good family tree. Um, They also took oaths and invoked God's name. In other words, God was on the tongue, on their tongue. They would make reference to God in their speech. They identify themselves, their citizenship, with, with Israel, with Jerusalem. But despite all that, something was not right. They confessed God, but not in the right, not in truth. Do you see that? This is what God says about them. And if we keep reading verse 4, God says about these people, they call themselves after the holy city. They stay themselves on the God of Israel. In other words, they claim their citizenship to be belonging to Jerusalem. And they even say that they lean on God. They talk about relying on the Lord. Yet something is really off with them spiritually. And this chapter is a brutal awakening to their spiritual heart condition, even though their mouths, even though their public profession was all right. Friends, even though they were vocal about God and confessed Him, their confession of God was neither truthful nor according to what God required of them. Friends, I wonder if, if we, as we look at this passage, at what God is doing in this chapter, I wonder if we have room in our thinking that God can reject the confession of certain people as inadequate. That God can look at the confession that some people may have about God. And God can say to them, your confession about me is not in truth, nor right. That merely confessing God with our lips, 
merely identifying ourselves as God's people may not make our confession right or truthful. Now, friends, I have spoken on this matter before. That one of the greater dangers in our culture today is not secularism, but nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity means that people are Christians in name only. Only by what they say with their mouths. But nothing truly has happened in the heart. Friend, God himself is not pleased with a confession about him that is not right or truthful. And neither should we. Notice what God knows about, to be true about these people to whom, to whom he speaks in verse 4. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. Now, the word for obstinate means stubborn. Even though they were calling themselves by the name of God, even though they were confessing God with their mouths, even though they said they were relying on, the, on God, they were stubborn in their spiritual walk. They were stubborn. Now, to be stubborn is never a virtue. But we have learned to think lightly of stubbornness in our culture. We often view stubbornness as an acceptable defect. After all, each of us may have some area of life where we show some degree of stubbornness, don't we? So when we hear God's accusation that his people are stubborn, it's easy for us to easily brush it off. Oh, he, and, oh, he or she can be stubborn in this way, or there's a bit of stubbornness in, in every one of us. Well, here, dear friends, God is bringing this accusation that his people are stubborn, but we should not think of this accusation in any light or superficial way. God gives us two illustrations to, to get, to capture, to feel the weight of this accusation of what stubbornness is. And the pictures, the illustrations that God gives in this word is, is a picture of having your neck as an iron sinew. In other words, you are unwilling to bend your neck in submission to God. Such person does not want to bow before God. This is not talking about a physical bowing. It's talking about a spiritual bowing before the Lord, submitting to the Lord. A person whose neck is made of iron neither wants to bow nor can it bow. The second picture is a picture of having your forehead made of brass. This picture shows one's commitment not to change one's mind. This is a person who has made up his mind and is not willing to consider or change or reconsider. God is exposing his people, exposing in his people to see that no matter what they say about God externally, their attitudes in their minds and in their hearts are characterized by this stubbornness, by unwillingness to submit to the Lord, and by an unwillingness to be 
changing one's mind about the Lord based on what the Lord says. Friends, it is possible for us, it is possible for us to confess God with our mouths, yet be stubborn in the heart. Don't think of stubbornness as an acceptable weakness when it comes to our spiritual lives. To be unwilling to bow to God, to be unwilling to submit to God out of love for Him, such unwillingness is no light weakness. It is a significant indictment brought against God's people, often in Scripture. The reason the Israelites have rejected the Messiah. When God sent His own Son, incarnate, a Virgin Mary, and Jesus grew up and began His ministry, the people of Israel rejected God's own Son, the only Savior. Why? What's the, what's the accusation that's brought often in the New Testament? It's because God's people were stiff-necked. This picture of being stiff-necked, of having your neck made of, of iron, unwilling to bend, unwilling to turn. Oh, friends, this stubbornness can cause God's people to reject even the Messiah. Stubbornness is a big deal. It's a weighty accusation. The stubbornness of, of God's people was manifested in two ways in this passage. First, they attributed, to God's, uh, they attributed God's work to idols. Look in verse 5. God says why he told his people ahead of time why he planned to do. God prophesied to them ahead of time not to satisfy their curiosity. God prophesied ahead of time to them what he would plan to do to subdue their tendency to attribute God's work to their own idols. Wow. Look at verse 5. I declare them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. They would rather attribute God's work to idols rather than to the Creator. That was the tendency. The second way in which God, their, their stubbornness would manifest is brought out in verse 6 and 7. Their stubbornness manifested in an attitude of know-it-all. A know-it-all attitude. They had no more openness to hear from God. Look at verse 6 and 7. From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. God confronts here their own sense of knowing God's plans. They were confident that they knew already what God said, and they didn't need to hear any more, anything new. But sadly, that confidence led them to close their ears. They were no longer attentive to God's word. They were no longer seeking God's truth because they had a confidence that they already knew it all. Have you ever seen people with this attitude know-it-all they can't listen to anything else because they know it all friends stubbornness spiritual stubbornness manifests in our hearts in this way 
and we live this way towards God, we are not open to hear what God has to say because we think we already know it. We're not seeking to have communion with God, to open His Word on a regular basis, to say what God has to say to us because we think we know it all. This is opposite of the attitude that Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount, to be poor in spirit and to declare to God daily that we need to hear from Him through His Word. We don't hear from God based on our feelings. We don't hear from God based on our experiences. We hear from God based on His Word. So God says in verse 8, You have never heard. You have never known. Whoa. From of old, your ear has not been open. In other words, God says, it's not only that your ear is not open now to hear. Your ear has never been opened. Your problem is deeper than you think. In this verse, God gets to the root of their know-it-all attitude. That attitude was a manifestation of a deeper problem. The root of their know-it-all attitude is that they have never heard. They have never known. Their ears have never been opened. Now, it's interesting, though, to observe they did have access to God's Word. God did reveal His Word to them. And yet, God says, your ears have never been opened. There's a sense in which they have not heard God's Word with the ears of their hearts. Even though they, their physical ears were open, their spiritual ears were not. Claiming to know God, claiming to have knowledge of His ways, and yet God's ways they have not known because their ears have not been opened spiritually. This challenge that God brings against His people should give us caution as well, dear friends. Do we have an overconfidence that we know God's Word? We want to grow in the knowledge of God's Word, but without developing a know-it-all attitude. Here's one way to think about it. How can you grow in the knowledge of God's Word and not develop a know-it-all attitude? If your knowledge of God's Word leads you to desire less of it, you are pursuing the wrong kind of knowledge of God's Word. Or you are pursuing it with a wrong heart. There are people who can study God's Word. There are people who even learn Greek and Hebrew to read God's Word in the original languages, and yet they do not know God. They do not want to know God. Friends, if your knowledge of God and if your desire to know God's Word leads you to, des to desire less of God and less of His Word, you're heading in the wrong direction. God's last indictment against His people is the most searing of all. In verse 8, God says, For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Oh, my Lord. We get here a revelation of the root, of the problem, of their stubbornness. 
from before birth. You were called a rebel. This verse reveals, dear friends, that stubbornness with God is a form of rebellion. Friends, being stubborn towards God is a manifestation of our rebellion against God. And in this verse, God also reveals to his own people that their rebellion started before they were born. In other words, rebellion is not simply something we fall into. Rebellion is something we inherit. We are not rebellious because we rebel. Rather, we rebel because we are rebellious. We rebel because we are born in a rebellious nature, with a rebellious nature. The problem of humanity is that we are born rebels towards our Creator. We inherit a rebellious nature toward our Creator. Friends, this is why converting to Christianity, becoming a Christian, is not just a matter of deciding to be a Christian. If I wanted to become a Muslim, I would need to decide to become a Muslim. And if I began practicing the Muslim tenets of faith, if I began reading the Quran and practicing the, 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 the religious practice of Islam, I would become a Muslim. But it's not the same way with Christianity. Becoming a Christian is not just a matter of decision, of the human will. Because our problem is not just a matter of the human will. Becoming a Christian necessitates, requires, means being given a new nature that is no longer rebellious towards God. The New Testament calls this change of nature a new birth or a regeneration. The bringing of a new life into our souls here and now. And one of the effects of this regeneration, one of the effects of this new birth, is that we are given ears that are open to hear God's Word. And we begin listening and acting on what God says. Oh, friends, each one of us need God to change our hearts, to give us a new life, to work in us a regeneration, a regenerate spirit, to give us new ears to hear His Word. If you realize your need for such ears to hear God, to hear God's Word, call on the name of Jesus to save you and to give you the ear to hear God's Word. Because God's people have been rebellious, they deserved God's punishment. God says in the Bible that the wages of rebellion is death. The wages of rebellion is death. God's people in the Old Testament deserved to die. Notice though what God says, what God did instead. He deferred his anger. Look at verse 9. Why? Look at verse 9 and 10 and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. 
This is what they deserved. They deserved to be cut off. And God says, I've deferred my anger. Why? God says, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. A a, a beautiful picture. When God would refine silver, it means that he would purify it entirely so that no more impurity remains in it. God says here, I have refined you, but not as silver. In other words, I have not carried out my punishment to the fullest. I'm stopping the process halfway. I am putting a pause on my affliction against you. And this is exactly what God did with the exile. God did not punish his people to the moment of extinguishing them, of killing them. He stopped and rescued them. But why did God rescue them? Look at verse 10 and 11 again. For my own sake. For my own sake. God says twice he repeats this phrase. For my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Do you notice in these verses four times God says that he restrained his anger for the sake of his name. For the sake of his praise. It is not for our sake. It's not for the sake of his own people that God deferred his anger. This means that the reason why God delays his judgment upon his people is so that his name might be praised. His name might be glorified. Had he acted immediately to destroy his people, the nations would have not seen evidence of God's ability to save his people. Had God acted immediately to destroy his people, the nations would have not seen evidence that God is able to save his people. So God deferred his judgment so that he could rescue rebellious people, even though they don't deserve it. They deserve the opposite. And yet God saved them so that the nations might see That he is a God able to rescue even rebellious people. The ultimate motivation why God saves us, dear friends, is not ourselves. But the glory of his name. Now it's true that God saves his people out of love for them. We know in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him or trusts in him, may not perish but have everlasting life. That is a true verse. It's a wonderful verse. But there's an ultimate motivation even beyond love. Why God saves rebellious people. He saves them for the sake of His name. He saves them to show the greatness, the, the, the magnitude of His power to rescue. Friends, God's salvation is not merely to keep us comfortable for eternity. God's salvation is not ultimately about our eternal comfort. God's salvation is ultimately about the glory of His name. So when we think about why God saves us, why God would care for His people, recognize, dear friends, when we confess God, when we confess God's mercy and grace, it's ultimately because of Him. And therefore, we are called, even in, in, in hearing the good news of God's salvation, We are called to submit to God. We're called to surrender to God. We're called to bow our hearts 
to Him and enjoy, observe, and listen what He says and follow Him. The second point that we see in this passage is a fresh call to listen. A fresh call to listen. And this is how we see God's mercy extend in the second half of the chapter. In the second half of our text, God speaks to His people not to punish them for their rebellion, but to extend mercy to them. And we have seen already why God would extend mercy. It's because of the glory of His name. But how do we see God's mercy extended in the rest of this chapter? How do we see it? By the fact that God keeps speaking to His people. You might say, well, why is that? an act of mercy. You mean, just speaking to rebellious people is an act of mercy? Yes. Here's why. The first half of the chapter described God's people as being unable to hear. Right? And, and their hearing problem is not just a, 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 a seasonal problem in the present. It's been going on from before birth. And you might wonder, God, if the people whom, to whom you want to speak have their ears closed, if they can't hear, why are you wasting your time talking to them? And this is God's mercy. God would still speak to the people who have no ears to hear. Because in speaking, God not only imparts information, but in speaking, God imparts the power to open up their ears so they can hear. This is God's mercy. A similar point is seen in, in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17. People who need to believe in God, how will, they he how will they believe in God? And the Apostle Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, faith comes by hearing. That's it. People who have no ears to hear, what they need is to hear God's word. And then hearing comes through the word of Christ, says the Apostle Paul. Somehow mysteriously, in an unknown way, we can't put our finger on it. When the word of God is spoken, when people hear the word of God, something happens. Their ears begin to open up and they begin to hear God's word. Oh, dear friends, notice how often in the rest of this chapter, the words or the, the verbs of listening or hearing or, or paying attention are, 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 are used five times in the rest of this chapter. In verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob. Verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. Verse 16, draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit who leads you in the way you should go. Verse 18, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. You see, five times in these verses, we see the reference to hearing, to listening, 
to paying attention to what God speaks. The first time God called them to listen, he pointed out that the one calling them is the one who is the first and the last. That no one is before him, no one is after him. In other words, a God who speaks is the first in existence and the last in existence. The God who speaks is also the God who spread out the heavens with his right hand. In verse 13, God says that when he calls the heavens, they listen. They gather. They stand forth together. The second time God calls his people to listen, in verse 14, he says, assemble together, draw near. He wants them to listen not just as an individual. He wants them to listen as a corporate body. That's an important part why we even, we as, as a congregation, we listen to God's word not only personally in our own quiet times throughout the week when we read God's word, but also when we gather together as one people to hear him. God wants, to, God wants his people to be gathered together. So he speaks to them as one people. And he tells them again that the plans with Cyrus are his plans. That God called Cyrus, that God loved Cyrus, that Cyrus will rise up to power and he will accomplish everything that God has planned to do with Cyrus against the Babylonian Empire. God tells his people again as a gathered people, Cyrus is my plan. Trust me, God says, I will accomplish my purposes. You don't like it with him, but I will do it. The third time God calls his people to hear is in verse 16. God tells them that his plans are open for anyone to hear. God has not spoken his plans in secret. God is sending his messenger to make known his word. In other words, God's plans of redemption are not God's plans of redemption are not some secret knowledge only for a few people. They're not they're not some sort of secret knowledge only for the elite. No, God revealed his word and his plan of redemption for all to hear it. The fourth time God speaks to his people, he tells them that he wants them to teach, or he wants to teach them what is profitable, the things that will benefit them. Look at verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 18. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit. Another word to translate this. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you. Friends, when we call on God, and when God calls on us to listen to Him, when He calls us to, to hear His Word, He wants to teach us what benefits us, what is good for us. How often, though, we might be tempted to think that God's teachings are not the best thing for us. Right? And God says, listen, I am calling you. I want to teach you what's best for you. God calls us to listen to Him so that we may know which way we should go. This is why earlier in our service we sang the song about God teaching us uh, to, to lead us, that God is a God who leads His people. It is God's mercy that He gives His people a fresh invitation to listen to Him so that He can teach them and guide them. But the fifth time God brings up the theme of listening to Him is in verse it's in verse 18. Here God describes what would have been their benefit if they had listened to God's word. God says, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like 
river. What a picture. This picture of a comparing peace of comparing peace to a river shows the permanency of peace. The peace that God promises to give to those who listen to him is a peace that is not like a seasonal brook that sometimes dries out in times of drought. No, God's peace that he gives to those who hear his word and pay attention to him is like a river. Horatio Spafford, after the great tragedy that he experienced when four of his daughters died in the same day, drowned in the big tragedy of an of a ocean liner that, that went under, he went back on that same journey, and when he traveled on that journey, inspired by God's Spirit in some way, he penned the words of this song that we know well. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well for my soul. The peace that God gives when we pay attention to his word, is a peace like a river. Like a river. It doesn't dry out. It goes on. Yet God's people did not experience this peace in the Old Testament. Sadly, the history of God's people in the Old Testament has been the history of people who have chosen not to pay attention to God's word. But Israel's story is, is a story of all humanity. Not only Israel, but all humanity has chosen not to pay attention to God's word. And one of the results of our disobedience is that we lose peace. So one of the Bible teachers, interpreters, he said, the fruit of disobedience is a loss of peace. The peace that God speaks of is not political peace. It is not military peace. It's not even just an emotional peace. It's a peace that cannot be bought. It's a peace that cannot be fought for. It's a peace that cannot be obtained with our own efforts. Rather, it is a peace that we receive when we begin listening to the Word of God. Later in Isaiah 52, chapter, uh, chapter 52, verse 7, the prophet will say, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. This peace is proclaimed to us, my dear friends, in the good news of salvation. Oh, friends, do you know this peace? It is a peace that comes when we respond to Jesus as our only Savior, the one who saved us from our sin, the one who died on a cross the one who was crucified as a curse by God to take upon himself the penalty of our rebellion so that through his death, God may extend peace to those who turn to him. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he conquered death, that he paid sin in full, and that our rebellion 
has been covered. Now God extends rebellious sinners to come to Him. Friends, if you don't know this peace with God, I encourage you to turn to God. Ask God to save you. Turn away from your ways, from your self-centered ways, from your rebellious ways, from your good ways that are still about you. Turn to the Lord and ask God to save you. If you'd like to know more about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. After God speaks to His people about the importance of listening to Him, God gives His people a command. And His command to His people is this. Look at verse 20. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. Do you see how after, after God has spoken to His people five times about listening to Him, calling them to listen, now God gives them the command. And what's the command? Go out of Babylon. Flee. This language, this language of leaving Babylon is used again by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, in the chapter that we read earlier in our service, in Revelation 18. When God says the following about Babylon, and in Revelation 18, Babylon is no longer just a city, a physical city. It is the, the symbol of a world that has turned its ways, its back against God, of a world that lives in luxury, of a world that lives in pleasure, of a world that lives for, for pleasure and for luxury and for pleasing ourselves. God says to His people, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. If God revealed to His people that He will destroy Babylon for her sins, it is so that they would not make any permanent plans of retiring in Babylon. So that they would not make plans to stay there until they die. So that they would come out of Babylon. God has called His people to leave the place of their bondage. For that place will be destroyed. Friends, we have been born in a land of bondage. I know America is free. It's free economically. It's free politically. It's free militarily. But even as Americans, we have been born in a land of bondage. It's a bondage to sin. It's a bondage to rebellion against God. And we need the freedom from this rebellion. God calls His people to leave the place in which we have been born, in our rebellion, because it will be destroyed. It will be destroyed, just like Babylon of old. It will be destroyed. My people, says God, flee, come out of Babylon, for it shall be destroyed. I wonder if any among us are still living in the Babylon of our world. I wonder if anyone among us has still not heeded the call to flee, to come out of Babylon. Oh, dear friends, God offers salvation to anyone who would listen to Him, who would listen to His call. Anyone who would call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Well, dear friends, God wants us, God wants his people as they leave Babylon to leave with a shout of joy and to proclaim that God has redeemed his people. If we don't find joy in God's salvation, it will be hard for us to leave Babylon. And it will be hard for us to leave Babylon in joy. Many of us might be like, like Abraham's, uh, like, like Lot's wife, when the angel brought Lot and his wife out of Sodom and Gomorrah and looked back. God wants his people to leave Babylon shouting in joy. Some of us may be lacking in the joy of salvation. We may need to pray like, like David did, Lord, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. This chapter ends not only with a call for God's people to leave Babylon and leave with joy and leave with, with a message to proclaim that God has redeemed his people. This message, this chapter ends with a severe warning. In verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord for the wicked. It's a very interesting way to close this chapter, especially after God has just told his people, flee Babylon, go in joy, go declare that, that God's salvation, God has brought his salvation to his people. In an interesting way to close a chapter. There was so much about joy at the end. There's no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. This verse is especially amazing when we remember that it was given first and foremost to the exiled people. We might be inclined to say, there's no peace for the exiles in exile. They surely are the ones who are distraught. They have been destroyed. Their inheritances have been plundered. We might expect God to say, there's no peace for those who are in exile. Yet this chapter and the previous chapters have been saying that God is able to bring the exiles back to their land and to replant them back. But that alone will not give them peace. Physical restoration is not the source of peace. It is listening to God that is a source of peace. And God's people will be returning back to their land. They need to hear this warning if they continue in their wicked ways, if they continue to ignore God and His Word, there is no peace for them, even in their restored land. I love how one commentator said, A change of scene does not bring a change of heart. Leaving Babylon, the people do not escape from their own character. Friends, returning back to the land does not mean necessarily that they are returning back to God. And that's the warning that this verse gives. It doesn't matter that the people of God are coming back to their land. The land cannot be the source of their peace. Their land will not provide for them the peace they need. Only the Lord brings that peace. And rebelling against the Lord will continue to cause them and us the lack of peace. Two points in this passage that we have considered this morning. External confession is not sufficient. External confession of God is not sufficient. The second point, a fresh call to listen to God is given. And in this, we see the mercy of God. One of the characteristics of the people who belong to God is that they listen to God. They pay attention to Him and respond 
to God's Word. I love the New Testament way in which we have this truth confirmed by Jesus himself. Jesus said in, Matthew, in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The one characteristic of all those who truly belong to God is that they listen to God's word and they respond to him and follow him. I often tell people that we as a church are called to worship God by listening to his word and following him. And as one pastor once said, history is divided between those who listen to God and those who don't. I wonder in which camp you are. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that often our hearts have not been attentive to your word. Father, we need to ask of you for a fresh work of your Holy Spirit to create in us the hunger for your word, to create in us the readiness to hear your word, to create in us a desire to pay attention to your word. Father, give us hearts that are willing to listen. Give us hearts that are able to listen. And if there's anyone here among us this morning whose ears have never been opened up, Lord, would you open up their listening ears so they can listen your truth and respond to you in a way that glorifies your name, in a way that shows the world that we are a people who belong to you by the fact that we listen to you, by the fact that we respond to your word. We pray that you would be glorified in us as you save us, as you set us for your purposes, as you speak to us, and as we listen. In the name of Christ, we pray.